0: The Bottom Line in Business, Voice America Business.
1: Welcome to The Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, The Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
2: Welcome to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Marvin Appel, who's written a new book called Beating the Market, Three Months at a Time a proven investing plan everyone can use. Welcome to the show, Marvin. Thank you very much. Uh, let's be, Before we get into some of the details of the different strategies you talk about in this book, give me a kind of an overview of, of how you think investors in general do with their money and, and uh, what are some of the things that they do right and what are the th- some of the things they do wrong and why do lots of them not end up being the market?
3: Well, I, I think the main reason that individuals uh, as a group lag the market is that they invest in things, whether it be individual companies or mutual funds, after the horse has left the gate. In other words, after something makes the news and it's uh, been a hot performer, then money tends to chase performance. And although that's not necessarily a bad idea at all times, as, as the book discusses, uh, people just don't seem to be getting it right. So that there is, for example, the famous uh, study by Dalbar that they, they've they been doing for the last uh, several years, uh, where that shows that since 1984, the average mutual fund investor has underperformed the funds in which they invest. So it, it's not even that they may, be, may not be picking the right funds, but they're, they're picking the funds that they're, that they're in at the wrong time. And, and I, I think that's... That's the main problem, is, is that people, even though they say they're long-term investors, in fact, make short-term investment decisions uh, with less than thorough research, and uh, perhaps at times when, when emotions get the best of them.
2: Now, one of the things you talk about in this book is that it's not that difficult. It doesn't take huge sophistication. doesn't take a lot of time uh, to, in fact, uh, beat the market. Is that uh, what you're saying this book can deliver? Yes, and and that almost sounds counterintuitive. I mean, the uh, the the average person would say, "Oh, in order for me to do well, I've got to spend lots of time learning about these things. Got a real expert, and uh, you know, watch these things all the time." Before we get into the details, wh- why is it that you think that's not necessarily true?
3: Well, uh, there there is a there's a diminishing returns. In other words, that that. W- the book discusses several very simple, basic, and not time and strategies that the individual can do for him or herself that don't require a lot of time, and that can give you a nice performance edge. Now, if, if someone is inclined to spend a great deal of time or make a career of this, uh, they may well be able to refine what's in the book, as, as we do in our own money management practice, and, and get even better results. But the point is, is that even some very basic investing ideas can go a long way. Basically involves, um, in a nutshell, uh, staying out of the stuff that's lagging and overemphasizing the areas of the market that are outperforming, and uh, you know that, just that basic strategy. Uh, whether it's applied to ETFs or to mutual funds, has historically uh, given the individual investor a significant edge compared to just buying and holding a hypothetical index fund, which most individual investors fail to fail to match anyway.
2: So you're saying that momentum investing, kind of not short-term but longer-term momentum investing, is the way to go. Yes. And and you, I guess you have a lot of uh, stories in the in the book as to why that is true. But why is that true? Why is it not that people are going to get into a trend after, you know, it's it's pretty well along in the tooth and and get in near the end as opposed to the beginning of a of a momentum trend?
3: Well, uh, that of course is the the uh, the whole. Of um, investing you know, with trend following or momentum. Momentum is obviously, uh, it has the connotation of, of picking a hot stock that's gone up a lot last week. But in terms of trend following, th- there are certain tre- investment trends uh, that have lasted for years at a time. And just by being on the right side of those long term trends, uh, investors could have improved their returns uh, compared to a hypothetical whole market investment. And, and, and that's the goal, is to identify potentially major long-term trends and, and to get on them in time. And and that's why it's important to have a, an objective and systematic methodology rather than you, you're reading the newspaper and suddenly you come across a story that says small caps are lagging this year and so, so you decide to act on that. that. that That's more random. that That's a function of when the editor chose to run that particular story rather than a systematic uh, study of how the trends that favor, for example, small caps versus large caps have run. Uh, it turns out that those that particular trend, uh, when it's been established, has lasted for years at a time. And and so there's plenty of time to get on board if you're looking for it in advance and you can recognize it in a timely enough manner, which the book shows you how to do.
2: Now, your first chapter, and again, I'm speaking with Marvin Appel, who's written a new book called Beating the Market, uh, Three Months at a Time, A Proven Investing Plan Everyone Can Use. Uh, this is published by FT Press, uh, Financial Times Press. Uh, your first chapter is called Putting Together a Winning Investment Portfolio, and your first uh, major element in, in doing that is to uh, balance your portfolio. Tell us about what you mean by balance.
3: Well, for, uh, as a general rule, you don't want to put too many eggs in one basket, and even though U.S. equities have an Outstanding, long, very long-term, multi-decade record of returns, and have the advantage also of uh, high degree of liquidity, so that you can get your money out when you need it. Nonetheless, uh, th- there are periods of times when equities fail to fail to uh, deliver returns, or when they can, when they have suffered severe losses, and and so you, you don't want all your eggs in, in just that equity basket. And the interesting thing is that historically, if you if one had diversified an all equity and otherwise all equity portfolio into 25% investment grade bonds over the last 50 years you wouldn't have even earned less money than being in all equities but you would have considerably reduced your risk so In that sense, um, you you want balance. You don't want all your money in just equities. Most people should have some of their money in bonds as well. You don't want all your money in just one type, uh, one area of the stock market, and you certainly don't want all your money or a preponderance of your money in in any single company because uh, unless you have inside information, um, you you don't know what's going to happen with that company. Even the best companies suffer uh, major hiccups at times and uh, without the insight of, of really following that company as, as at the level of a professional analyst uh, or, or in a, in a, a good professional analyst. You, you just don't want to take that kind of risk.
2: So that's balance amongst assets. And then you're saying diversification is also important, and that's more diversifying between industries within stocks. Is that what you're saying there?
3: Yeah, yeah. Certainly you, you don't want to be in – you want to diversify among multiple companies. And um, actually in, in our – money management uh, practice, we have found that diversifying between mutual funds and exchange-traded funds uh, has been a good way of um, of serving our clients because the exchange-traded funds have many advantages, but there, there are several areas where mutual funds are the, are the better investment selection. So you want to evaluate your options and choose the best ones.
2: And then you say that commodity-based investments uh, as a hedge against inflation, that seems particularly true these days, where commodity-oriented stocks and funds are doing very well, whereas uh, consumers of commodities are getting hurt. So is is this something that's always true or particularly true right now?
3: Well, uh, it's a a difficult question. It certainly certainly hasn't always been true, and it is particularly true right now. the 1970s were, were a great time for commodities, and and this decade has been. Uh, the 80s and 90s were a period of disinflation. They're generally falling commodity prices. Uh, and so it, it, you'd be hard-pressed to come up with even a 25-year track record that suggests that commodities are a good investment always because of, of, of the big hit they took in the 80s and 90s. Now, nobody knows what's going to be in the future. Right now, it seems commodity prices can only go up, but... That's what we thought in the 70s as well. We'll just have to wait and see. The advantage of commodities at all times is that during periods when the stock market has done poorly, commodities have, uh, during long periods, commodities have tended to do well. And during periods when commodities were doing poorly, the stock market tended to do well. So, as a means of diversification, some commodity related investments can always potentially improve the balance between risk and reward this is not to say that commodities are going to continue um, <coughs> the, the type of steep uh, excuse me the type of steep climb that they had over the past several years I, I don't think that's sustainable but over a long term uh, commodities can actually result in, in, in decreased overall investment risk provided you don't overweight them uh, commodity investments themselves are very volatile uh, even a diversity for diversified commodity index, such as the um, Dow Jones AIG Commodity Index, which is tracked by uh, an ETF uh, whose ticker is DJP, even that has, has been more volatile than the S&P 500. So even diversified commodity investments have been more volatile than diversified stock investments. But having some in your portfolio uh, is, is, a prob- is probably prudent, given what we know now about the type of inflationary pressures we're facing.
2: And then you say that outperformance is an important part as well, that you want to get assets that are continually outperforming others. And, and basically your argument is that if something's outperforming now, it's going to continue to outperform for a while. You may not be sure how long, but you kind of got to go with the winners is, is what's happening right now. Is that basically what you're saying?
3: That's basically what we're saying with, with, the, with the understanding that uh, I'm not saying, for example, picking a winning stock is the sa- and going with it on that basis is the same thing as picking a winning style of investing. Or is the same thing as picking a whole asset class that's winning. But, but, so we, your menu of options has to be fairly diversified. In other words, fairly broad. Each of each each item in your menu of options should be broad. So, for example, high yield bonds is a broad menu, is a broad investment, not high yield bonds from General Motors, for example, which is not a broad, which is too specific to be for most people to consider. So, broad asset classes when they lead, have tended to often uh, continue to lead for months or years at a time. You don't know in advance how long the trend is going to last because often trends last far longer than you might project or than you might even think is reasonable. And and so, yes, what you said is correct. You you look at broad asset classes and you overemphasize those that are outperforming.
2: You you say one of the main important uh, parts of investing is to avoid large losses. Um, and that, uh, I guess you quote somebody saying, he who fights and runs away lives to fight another day. Are you saying that that's a major problem amongst investors, that they they don't take small losses, their losses become large, and it, it kind of overwhelms their portfolios?
3: That that has been a, a big problem for many individual investors, uh, depending on uh, what their program is. But there, there are many stories about people who loaded up on technology stocks in the late 1990s and then saw 80% of their portfolio wiped out because they couldn't uh, get their head around the idea that uh, the times had changed and that these stocks had some kind of... Uh, You know, that they were so wildly overinflated when they bought them. So it is important to have some kind of uh, risk limitation. And and generally, the the overall stock market, such as the S&P 500, is simply too risky for the average investor. Between 2000 and 2003, the S&P 500 lost nearly half of its value from top top to bottom. And most people can't abide that kind of risk. And and it's easy to say in retrospect, well, you know, I'll I'll long term, I'll wait for it to recover, but... uh, uh, you know, at the time, you don't know when it hits bottom that it has or that it won't go lower. And if you're drawing money on your investment, uh, you can't afford to take that kind of risk because taking a fixed amount uh, from a shrinking investment pool just just uh, reduces your chances of ever getting back back uh, back to where you were before.
2: So we, we actually have to take a break, Marvin. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman with the Money Answer Show, and my guest this hour is uh, Marvin Appel. has written a new book called "Beating the Market Three Months at a Time." A proven investing plan everyone can use and we'll be back after this
0: the internet's only all business and financial radio network voice america business
1: you hear business show after business show all geared towards improving a company's bottom line but what about your bottom line How come no one ever talks about that? Finally, a show dedicated to the worker, The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, The Crow Show is aimed specifically at the worker and their environment. From work skills and technology to dealing with bosses and coworkers, The Crow Show will give you insight on how to survive and prosper in today's workplace. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. both their products and services are invited to become members of the money answers network the public can sign up for membership in the money answers network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources to learn more visit www.moneyanswers.com get ahead with money answers
0: the internet's only all business and financial radio network voice america business
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome
2: back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Marvin Appel, uh, who's got a new book out called Beating the Market Three Months at a Time, a proven investing plan everyone can use. Welcome back to the show, Marvin. Thank you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about ETFs. Uh, people may have heard of them, but let's ex- describe what exchange-traded funds are, and the advantages and disadvantages of them versus uh, owning mutual funds.
3: Well, exchange-traded funds are basically mutual funds in that each one represents a proportional ownership in a basket of stocks, but they you, you trade them like stocks. You you buy them and sell them through a brokerage account rather than transacting directly with a mutual fund company. And that may sound like a minor distinction, uh, but, or, or, or just a matter of tech, uh, technical distinction, but there are some important practical differences. Um, ETFs, the largest ETFs, uh, today are those that track well-known broad market indexes, such as the S&P 500 or the S&P 400 or the NASDAQ 100, which are, of course, large U.S. stocks, um, Mid-cap U.S. stocks, uh, mainly technology, large technology stocks, and there are some important ETFs that track uh, foreign stock indexes as well. Um, So, when you're buying an ETF, you're you're basically buying an index fund, and that means a couple of things. First, it means that the expenses you would that that your listeners would. Bear and, and holding such a, such an investment over a long-term period of many years, say, is going to be less than that of the vast majority of available traditional mutual funds.
2: So they're doing less trading is that the idea? I'm sorry they're doing less trading. Well is no, I'm not problem?
3: saying that at all. I'm saying if they don't trade, if your investor is, is suggest- if your listener wants to buy and hold, for example, an international mutual fund for five years, and, and chooses to do it through through an exchange traded fund, such as the one with ticker EFA. Uh, that's an iShares offering that tracks non North American developed country stocks, for example, mainly Western Europe and Japan. Uh, it, holding that for five years, the underlying expenses of the ETF are going to be uh, under half a percent a year, whereas most international equity mutual funds charge their shareholders more than a percent a year on average. So over the years, if you're not trading an ETF, if you're buying and holding it, you're getting the advantage. one of the main advantages of index funds, which is lower costs. Mm-hmm. Now, so, so for that reason... Um, the largest ETFs are also generally those that have outperformed a majority of their peer mutual funds because of, because of this cost advantage. Uh, the other thing, though, on the other side of the spectrum is if you want, if you want to be an active trader, uh, ETFs are also an excellent option because mutual funds uh, generally restrict the frequency with which you can buy and sell them, uh, whereas with an ETF, you're bearing your own transaction costs because you're placing the trade with, a, with an online broker and therefore you can buy and sell them as often as it's economical for you to do so. In other words, if you think you have a strategy where the frequency of trading uh, produces gains that outweigh the costs of your own trading, then you're free to implement it. Whereas in mutual funds, uh, you you could have the best uh, trading discipline in the world. A mutual fund won't let you execute it. They they will restrict uh, how much, how frequently you can trade. Some funds are liberal and will let you trade within a week. Others make you hold for months or years even. So Uh, ETFs are great for active traders, and and they're also good for people who want to establish a a position and and hold them for for many years, although there are some low-cost index funds, such as many offered by Vanguard, that are competitive with ETFs for that purpose. Uh, The disadvantage with ETFs is that you have to pay your own brokerage costs. So if your listener... Uh, one of your listeners, for example, wants to add $100 from every paycheck to his or her stock market portfolio, an ETF would be a bad way to do that because he'd have to pay a brokerage commission for every $100 investment. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you just added $100 per paycheck to a mutual fund, uh, that wouldn't cost you anything in transaction costs. So for for people who want to make frequent... Small contributions to their savings, uh, ETFs are not the not the way to go. But for people who want to be active traders, or for or for some people who want to be very long term multi year holders, uh, ETFs can be quite good. And I'm not talking about the the earlier ETFs, such as those uh, the S P D R spiders, or the uh, many of them offered by iShares. Some of the new year, newer ETFs are more exotic. Uh, Some of them are more specialized uh, than available mutual funds, and and that can be a good thing. And an example, which we were just discussing, is in the commodity space, where the selection of available commodity ETFs is greater than the selection of available mutual funds for commodity investors. Now, as I said, individual commodity sectors can be extremely volatile, and they may not be for everyone, but if, for example, you have a position uh, on agricultural commodities or on energy, uh, you can implement that much more efficiently using available ETFs than you can using available mutual funds. So so there is some selection advantage to ETFs. On the other hand, there are certain uh, fund managers that are exceptionally good, and uh, that deviate from any particular market index. Uh, they, they use their own judgment. They, they defy handy characterization. And some of those people, uh, of course, you can't, can't mimic that by buying an ETF. So you have to know your options. You have to know why you're buying something. But, but ETFs as a group are competitive in terms of their benefits with the majority of available mutual funds.
2: You have a list at the end of Chapter 2 uh, in your book, uh, Beating the Market, of some of your favorite uh, ETFs. Why don't you mention by category some of the ETFs that you think are, are worth going into these days?
3: Okay. Uh, I like... Um, I, I certainly like uh, the uh, emerging markets as a, as a long-term investment option. Again, the, the emerging markets have the advantage... Uh, shared that they share with commodities and that, and that they haven't historically been that well correlated with our own markets. So even though emerging market countries have had periods where their stock markets have lagged ours, and you can't be certain what's going to be happening in the next six months or a year. Uh, it is a fair bet I believe that emerging markets will continue to zig while our markets zag to a significant extent and therefore including them in your in your market portfolio uh, is, is likely to improve the balance between risk and reward overall uh, the best emerging market ETF for long-term holding is the Vanguard emerging market viper which ticker vwo I guess I don't use the word viper anymore but uh, that that Tracks the MSCI Emerging Markets Index and it has a very low expense ratio, mm-hmm. so so that's an excellent long-term emerging markets investment. And
2: how about um, the bond area? I'm sorry. How about in the bond area?
3: In the bond area, in the book we've listened, we've listed the uh, iShares Lehman Tips Bond Fund, uh, ticker TIP, which uh, holds individ- which holds uh, the inflation, in- holds the um, a sampling of all available inflation index treasury bonds. Uh, the advantage of those in a high inflation environment is that your interest is consists of a fixed rate whatever that may be typically on the order of one percent in today's market plus the inflation rate so if inflation should happen to go up from four percent to six percent the interest rate you get from these uh, from this ETF goes up from four to six percent as well, goes up by two points as well so, so this is a good inflation hedge and this is an economical way for people with relatively small accounts to, to take advantage of it uh, there's another ETF, uh, bond ETF, that that uh, is relatively new, and we didn't mention it in the book. It's called the iShares Lehman Intermediate Credit ETF, ticker CIU, which uh, holds corporate investment-grade corporate bonds from the U.S. That's paying about 5% a year in interest right now, and uh, the maturities of those bonds have been five to seven years, and it's had an, acceptable, an acceptably low level of uh, price volatility uh, in response to big changes in interest rate. So this is a good investment for people looking for a relatively secure bond investment that's paying more than treasuries.
2: And then you like some specific country ETFs as well. Uh, you mentioned Brazil uh, in the book, uh, which is the EWZ. Yes. Uh, are there some other uh, specific country ETFs that you like as well?
3: Yes. Um, at times, uh, and and it's one of them discussed in the book is EWJ, which is the Japan ETF. It is highly liquid. Again, the Japanese stock market has a wonderful history of. Zigging while our markets zag. It has not been well correlated with our, with our stock market, nor with emerging markets, nor with Western Europe. So having Japan in your portfolio at opportune times, as we discuss later at a later chapter in the book, uh, it could be an excellent way of improving your returns. So, uh, I like the EWJ. The, another ETF that I like a lot is EWC, which is the iShares MSCI Canada ETF. Um, the Canadian stock market is composed largely of metals, mining, basic materials, and uh, energy companies. Uh, In other words, companies that, by and large, benefit from the commodities boom, and by financial companies, which, of course, we know as a group haven't been doing as well. But Canadian banks, by and large, have been holding up better than U.S. banks because, uh, I guess, the properties uh, that they've been lending, uh, using as collateral for loans, uh, being more... Productive properties rather than residential or, or uh, space-occupying properties have, have held up better. So Canadian banks have held up better than our banks. And, of course, their com- their production sector has just been doing very well. So EWC has been an excellent uh, investment vehicle, vehicle and is one that people should, should follow.
2: When you go into these kind of things, what kind of a holding period uh, should you kind of expect or plan for?
3: Well... As I use ETFs in the strategy in the book, uh, you, you you would plan for a three-month holding period. Again, though, it, it depends on, on your strategy. For example, when we utilize EWC for our clients, we're looking to hold maybe up to a month. We're, we're looking for a shorter-term trade because, again, it's a it's a single country. It can be very, fairly volatile. So we're not looking to wait and see what happens in three months. We want to buy it at, a, at what we think is a an opportunity that may well not last, and then sell it at an opportunity that may well not last. So I I would recommend single-country ETFs uh, that you should keep an eye on them, not do that just every three months, Uh, with the exception of Japan. the Japan ETF, which is, is well enough diversified. Um, to to warrant using it in an every three month strategy, uh, if you're buying and holding it, uh, if you're buying a tips bond ETF or, or the TIP or the intermediate investment grade bond ETF, the ticker CIU, those of course you could hold for years. Uh, if you're buying diversified stock ETFs, again, if you have a trading strategy, by all means trade them as often as you need to. If you're if you're a chart reader, um, if you're looking to catch major trends favoring one type of investment style, such as mid caps over another, you might want to hold them for several months at a time.
2: Very good. So very good advice there. Okay, uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show, and again, my guest this hour is uh, Marvin Appel, uh, who's written a new book called Beating the Market, Three Months at a Time, a Proven Investing Strategy Everyone uh, Can Use. Uh, and we'll be back
0: after this. The Bottom Line in Business, Voice America Business.
3: Voice America Business.
0: Small Business Owners. Do you want answers to your most pressing financial concerns? Do you want to stop stressing about money and finally understand how to create wealth? Let Elizabeth Potts Weinstein and the Wealth Spa Radio Show answer your most pressing financial and legal questions about your small business and help you achieve business success and the lifestyle of your dreams easier and faster than you could imagine. The Wealth Spa Radio Show broadcasts live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Radio Network.
1: both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers.
0: The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business.
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. And my guest this hour is Marvin Appel, uh, who's got a new book out called Beating the Market, Three Months at a Time a proven investing plan everyone can use. Welcome back to the show, Marvin. Thank you. Uh, You were talking about three months. Uh, I want to be clear on that. You were saying uh, that, for example, where you have ETFs, you want to evaluate it. Are you saying every time you get a quarterly statement, you should see if it's doing well or not, and then that's the time to make a decision whether to hold it or not? Is that why you say three months?
3: No, actually, there's a very specific strategy that that, uh, when you select from a menu of ETFs, you can uh you should reevaluate the, that particular portfolio every 3 months at the end of the quarter not wait for your quarterly statements you really should be proactive on the on the last day of the quarter or the day after and figure out what your etfs have returned and then place the trade to to reallocate your portfolio if, if required.
2: So do you have a benchmark that you're expecting it to do, it, or are you are looking at it compared to other ETFs? I'm not sure exactly what you do at the end of the quarter. Oh, know. okay,
3: yeah, no, the strategy is very specific. There there are two menus of ETFs. There is an international menu, which consists of emerging markets, uh, such as the VWO that we mentioned, uh, the debt uh, of uh, Japan, that is EWJ that we've already mentioned, and of other developed countries, foreign stocks, the the iev from western europe for example
1: mm-hmm.
3: okay and you each every three months at the end of each quarter you evaluate the total return for each of those three etfs that represent three areas of the world's markets that have been uh, distinct from each other in terms of their investment trends uh, again japan emerging markets and western europe and you choose whichever one of those three for the next quarter, based on which one did best the last quarter. So, for example, as of March 31st, 2008, Japan was the best of those three for that first quarter. So the system would have you holding Japan as your international ETF allocation for the second quarter. Now, And so far, that's working out fine. Now, on June 30th, we'll reevaluate each of those three areas, and uh, the ETFs that represent each of those three areas, and whichever one's the best is the one we will hold for the third quarter.
2: And, and how do you get the information to know how they've done at the end of the quarter? Uh,
3: there are several ways you can do it. Uh, the most straightforward way is, for example, to go under Yahoo Finance. Um, that, that, that's timely, uh, or to go to the or to go to the website uh, provi- for the ETF provider, which is www.ishares.com, and you can look up the ETF, and they'll give you the uh, the court qu- the quarterly performance. Or if you, if you go to Yahoo Finance, you can get the actual prices at the beginning and the end of the quarter, but then you should also go to the iShares.com to see if there were any distributions made during the quarter that would affect the total return calculation that you have to make.
2: So that's why you're saying it doesn't take that much time, because basically you look pretty much once a quarter at these kind of things. You're exactly. You don't bother yourself with day-to-day fluctuations.
3: That's exactly right.
2: Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, you talk a lot about, uh, you have a chapter on special bond uh, opportunities,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, particularly let's talk about international uh, bonds. Uh, now, you have the U.S. dollar has been falling pretty sharply against uh, major currencies. Um, is is that one of the main reasons why you wanted to get into international bonds today as a dollar play? Uh,
3: basically, yes. Uh, there are some countries uh, where where the bonds pay higher interest, where where the interest rates are attractive. But by and large, it's the, the big returns from international bonds have been a, a dollar play, a play on weakening U.S. dollar.
2: And so you think that's going to continue? I, uh,
3: it is a certain, certainly a possibility. I, I think that the dollar, the worst of the dollar decline, is is over for now. Although I have to say that uh, the surprisingly large jump in unemployment uh, does does raise that. It does raise the question of whether uh, the dollar might fall further. Actually, until then, it looked as if the worst might be over. So it's really more a matter at this point of diversification. If you can get a a mutual fund uh, from a foreign country that's paying a competitive yield, you're insuring yourself against a falling dollar by by buying into it. C- certainly, there's nothing in the cards that suggests that the dollar is going to recover significantly well because the structural problems that created the weaker dollar are still in place, mainly uh, the size of our trade deficit and the fact that we need to inflate our economy in order to, to try to get past the housing crisis.
2: And what are some specific, uh, either mutual funds or ETFs that you would like in the international bond area?
3: Well, we actually like uh, the Pimco Developing Local Markets uh, mutual fund. Uh, that, that's been that's been very good in our in our uh, in our portfolio. That, that's the best one I'll recommend right now.
2: Okay, and what's the symbol for that one?
3: Oh, let me look that up. P, I think it's PLM PLM PLMDX. Uh
2: huh. Very good. Okay, so that's in the international area. And then you do say that uh, municipal bonds make a lot of sense uh, because of the tax-free nature of them. Now, that, that market has changed a lot. I mean, even recently, uh, the AAA ratings of uh, MBI and AMBAC backing municipal bonds was, was downgraded. Right. Uh, does that affect your view on municipal bonds and, and bond funds?
3: Well, it certainly affects my view in the sense that I don't recommend buying insured bonds. Because that, instead of buying instead of buying the risk of the municipality, you're buying the risk of the bond insurer, and that that's the insurance is supposed to give you peace of mind. And now, in fact, it would appear that the the risk of the insurer is greater than the risk of the municipality. So, I, I would say that the, the way I would approach municipal bonds is when there's a yield that you find attractive enough in a highly rated bond, that preferably a general obligation bond, uh, one that's backed. By, by all tax revenues rather than those conf, can, uh, confined to a specific municipal project, uh, then you can go ahead and buy it uh, with, with a reasonable degree of confidence. I, I don't like to buy anything that's, that carries below an A rating because. There is a chance that the U.S. economy will slip into recession. I, I don't expect such a thing to happen until next year, and I don't expect it to be a very severe one. But, but uh, certainly local tax revenues could go down in the next year. So I, I would say you would be patient. You decide how much interest you need to meet your finance goals, and you, and you could buy um, individual municipal bonds with an A rating or better. Uh, the other thing you could do is there is a uh, fund called the Nuveen High Yield Tax Exempt. Uh, the ticker is NHMAX, and that is a um, th- that that bond fund actually has had a bit of had a big sell off into March and is now stabilized and is paying about five percent a year in tax free interest. Uh, there is some risk in that, but it is a nice level of tax free interest. It is something to include in your bond port in your municipal bond
2: portfolio. What tax bracket do you think you should be in before you get into municipal bonds? Where bonds are trading today?
3: Um. I, I think that you have to be in a thirty percent tax bracket at least. Uh, mm-hmm. The competition for municipal bonds, is not treasuries, it's corporates yeah. and and investment grade corporate bond funds um, are, are paying, or, or the, the better ETFs such as the CIU that I mentioned are paying in the five percent area. Municipal bonds are paying in the three and a half percent in the three and a half percent area until you go way out twenty year maturity or more. So so you you really should be in the thirty percent tax bracket before you. Consider municipal bonds uh, on an after-tax basis, but of course, uh, you know, that's something you evaluate uh, on your own. And, and be careful not to buy private activity bonds that, that, uh, that uh, do not protect you from the alternative minimum tax.
2: Mm-hmm. The other area you talk about in the book, and again, I'm speaking with uh, Marvin Appel, who's written a book called Beating the Market, Three Months at a Time. You have a whole section on the junk bond market, what you call Treasure in the Junkyard, uh, How to Tame High-Yield Bonds. Uh, what are some of the pros and cons of getting into high yield bonds in today's market?
3: Okay, well, the, the the pro, which has always been a pro, is that the yields are better than available in other kinds of bonds, and and that's certainly true now. the the um, the, the the whole credit crisis uh, depressed the high yield bond market. People started worrying about credit risk, and as a result, uh, high yield bond bond yields uh, were elevated relative to the alternative. So yield is the best advantage. Uh, when you, if you do go into the high-yield bond market, I think it's imperative to, to utilize a m- diversified mutual fund. There is a high-yield bond ETF, but it's much more vol- has much more short-term price volatility than do a high-yield bond mutual fund. And, and since the typical holding period for high-yield bond mutual funds is from weeks to months, uh, it's not necessary to, to, to be in a vehicle that allows you to do short term trading, especially when there's elevated short term price volatility. So you should use high yield bond mutual funds. They're, they're typically paying over 7% a year now, uh, roughly 2% higher than comparable investment grade bond, uh, investment grade bonds. So, uh, high yield bond mutual funds are excellent.
2: And what uh, would be some of your favorite, uh, high yield bond
3: funds? Uh, well, again, I reviewed, uh, we, we looked at a large number of them, more than two dozen of them in the book. Uh, the ones that, that are my favorite include the Northeast Investors Trust and um, Vanguard's high-yield bond fund is excellent for people who don't want to trade. Uh, we do recommend trading, by the way, in which case I don't think Vanguard would be for you because of their one-year holding period minimum. But if you, you want to be in the high-yield bond space and you want to just buy something and forget it, the Vanguard is a good choice. And uh, Lord Abbott bond debenture, ticker LBNDX, uh, has also had an excellent track record. So, so, so those, are, those are my favorite high-yield bond funds.
2: So in the current credit environment, where the credit crunch seems to be intensifying, not getting less, uh, are you not concerned about uh, default rates going up, or, or you think it's already priced into the, the current prices and yields of the funds?
3: Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, the the high-yield bond fund market is behaving in the, uh, as if we're out of the woods for now. Uh, Now, I have to say that the default rate on high-yield bond funds historically has been in the 3 to 5% area, which is to say that by dollar value at issue, 3 to 5% of existing high-yield bond funds default each year, have defaulted each year on average over the past 25 years or so. And looking back over the past year, the default rate is still under 1%. The U.S. economy has not slipped into recession. Uh, The growth rate is anemic, but still positive. And, And so... Uh, I, I would be very surprised if we escaped this whole credit crunch without so much as a spike in the default rate of high-yield bonds. So this is not a time when I would recommend buying and holding a high-yield bond fund. On the other hand, right now the prices are reasonably stable. They're paying 7%. And and for our clients, we have a discipline of uh, selling them when, when the trend turns unfavorable. The book also presents a uh, discipline. It's a, it's a very simplified system from what we use for our own clients, but it's an effective one in getting you out of the major declines in the high-yield bond markets that have occurred every three to four years on average. And and that is simply, again, if a high-yield bond fund you're in has a negative quarter, stay out of it. So if you buy a high-yield bond fund, uh, if you evaluate your high-yield bond fund on June 30th, see if it had a positive quarter, which I think will be the case, you can buy it for the third quarter and reevaluate on September 30th. If it was at a loss, you sell it stay in cash for the next quarter but if it's at a gain you you keep it and let it ride and and that's such a simple system but the reason why it's worked is that the major declines in high yield bond funds have unfolded over periods of several months it's not like a market crash where you wake up one day and and suddenly the the market's fallen off a cliff in fact these things build for for weeks and months ahead of the actual steep sell-off, and, and so it's given you time to avoid the really bad bear markets that have occurred every several years, the high-yield bond market. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't take a buy-and-hold position now. I'd wait until after the recession ends, uh, which means you might have to wait another year. But if you're going to watch your investments every quarter, as we show you how to do in the book, you could certainly uh, look to take a high-yield bond investment on June 30th and start with the system at that point, reevaluating every three months.
2: Very good. Very good advice there. Okay, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show, and my guest this hour is uh, Marvin Appel, whose new book is called Beating the Market Three Months at a Time, a proven investing plan everyone can use. And we've been getting lots of very specific advice and ETFs and mutual funds you can invest in here. Uh, so we'll, we'll have more after the break. We'll
0: be back after this. The Bottom Line in Business Voice America Business.
1: Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business.
0: The Bottom Line in Business, Voice America Business.
1: You've been listening to the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is your host, Jordan Goodman, and my guest this hour is Marvin Appel, uh, who is an investment advisor and author of a new book called Beating the Market Three Months at a Time, a Proven Investing Plan Everyone Can Use. Welcome back to the last segment, Marvin. Thank you very much. Uh, We want to tell people about uh, your website and how they can find out more about uh, both your book and, and the services you provide.
3: Yes, well, thank you. Your listeners, if they're interested, can visit us at www.appelasset, That's com,
2: And they can get the book there as well, is that right?
3: Uh, yes, uh, we have a link to Amazon.com, which is really the best place to order it, but uh, certainly it's uh, they can visit our website uh, for, for order and order it there as well.
2: Uh, tell us a little bit about the investment services you provide. Uh, what is your minimum investment? and you know, what kind of returns have you provided to, to your clients compared to the averages?
3: Um, our long, well, our, our minimum investment, depending on the client, ranges from fifty to one hundred thousand dollars, and uh, our clientele is mostly individual clients, ranging from uh, young professionals just getting starting out to uh, to uh, high net worth uh, people who have accumulated millions of dollars over their over their uh, careers. And uh, our investment approaches are similar in spirit. To what we discuss in the book, although much require much more uh, hands-on uh, tracking of the market and what our clients are holding, but basically the idea is to control risk and to emphasize those areas of the of our clients, uh, those areas of the market for our clients that that have the best profit potential. So we're all about maximizing the balance between risk and return, about protecting our clients from the most severe market declines, and about uh, taking advantage of opportunities, uh, investment opportunities when they arise.
2: And do you have like an aggressive, moderate, and conservative portfolio, or how do you offer it?
3: Yes, basically that's it. Most of our clients uh, fall into what I would call a moderate type of portfolio, which is roughly 25% in income-oriented investments, including high-yield bond funds and and international bond funds, as we've discussed, and about 75% in a variety of uh, equity mutual funds and exchange-traded funds uh, that we utilize over different timescales. Some mutual funds have been so exceptional in terms of protecting shareholders during bear markets that we're willing to hold them for years at a time. Uh, Most mutual funds we hold for a typical period of about six months, and exchange-traded funds we utilize for shorter-term trading uh, where the typical holding period might be closer to a month, and if the market environment turns risky, we can use that We can sell those ETFs and raise cash to protect our clients from what might be a coming market decline. And if market
2: conditions improve, we can reinvest the cash in whichever ETF looks most opportune at the moment. And what kind of returns have you provided against various benchmarks?
3: Well, our our long-term, the the oldest audited program that we have uh, has returned 13% a year net of fees since 1979. And that's slightly better than the S&P 500 has done over that period, but we've done so with considerably less risk.
2: And, and how about the aggressive and the conservative portfolio? What kind of returns, even though you might not have as long a track record on those?
3: Well, I, I think the uh, being aggressive can add about 2% a year to, to your investment returns, potentially. You can't guarantee, of course, anything for the future. Uh, and, and a slight increase in risk, too, as well. Uh, and the conservative portfolio, I think it's reasonable to... Uh, well, i say historically the returns have been probably about the 8 or 9% a year area. Uh, interest rates a little lower now. Looking ahead, I would estimate uh, on the 7 to 8% a year might be achievable. Again, can't guarantee anything.
2: Yeah. Okay, one of the last chapters you have um, in beating the market is uh, don't let them blow you off the planet is the way you call it. So tell us a little bit about the, the baby boom as they're entering their retirement years and, and what kind of strategies they should be uh, taking advantage of here.
3: Well, of course, the p- I mean, I'm at the tail end of the baby boom. Uh, the problem is, uh, from a demographic and economical point of view, is that uh, the, the, there was a big increase in birth rate right after World War II, and, and the, the, that cohort of population born starting in 1945 is, is now just getting up to retire towards retirement age. They're in their early 60s, and the, the implications are that uh, that's a big, uh, big cohort of the population that's going to age. All you know in a relatively uh, concentrated period, thereby. Uh creating a big demand for medical services, the cost of which has outstripped inflation very consistently, and uh, also a big demand for retirement income, because as people retire, uh, as this big cohort retires, they're going to uh, claim their Social Security benefits, and uh, the relatively fewer workers will be remaining behind them to, to support the Sec- Social Security Trust Fund. So, so that, that's, those are the problems that, that the government and society and individual retirees all face. Is that everyone's going to be headed towards the exit at the same time.
2: So, what do you mean, don't let them blow you off the planet, by that?
3: <laughs> well, I, I, you know, the, 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 uh, <laughs> my, my father actually wrote this section of the book, and, and, uh, the real question is whether, uh, you, you know, whether there's going to be a rationing of medical care, uh, mm-hmm. in order to control health care costs. In other words, um, that's certainly not
2: what the politicians are talking about. They're talking about expanding health
3: care. Well, they are talking about that now, and uh, the, the real question is what, whether uh, what's going to force them to change their tune. But but certainly, medical care cannot, the, the outlays for medical care cannot increase faster than the growth rate of the economy indefinitely. And at some point. Um, you know, it's, it's, because if they did, then then at, at some point in the future, the entire economy would be devoted to, to providing medical care and nothing to actually producing anything else. So, at some point, the cost of medical care, if current trends continue, were extrapolated into the future, will overwhelm economy's ability to support it, and that, that, that's a, a foregone conclusion. I don't think anyone really believes that current trends are sustainable. The question is what to do about that, and uh, unfortunately, there there's no easy alternative. Well, uh, your solution
2: is to have people invest well so that they're going to be able to fund their own Healthcare and other well, that's attorneys.
3: exactly it, is, is that if you accept the, the notion that the government is going to have to ration health care or, or, or pull the plug on some of the insurance plans or limit the benefits the things that they'll cover, and and you want more than that, you, you're going to have to pay out of your own pocket. And, and so that's an important thing for people to consider. Um, I recently read a study that uh, showed that uh, a retiring person can expect a lifetime out-of-pocket medical care of a quarter million dollars uh, that between the co-payments and uncovered services and whatever Medigap insurance policies you buy and long-term care insurance, et cetera, et cetera. You, you might need to come up with a quarter million dollars during the course of your retirement just to meet your out-of-pocket medical expenses. And, and that's only going to get worse. So it's very important for people to, to plan on that and uh, invest and save accordingly.
2: Now, your last chapter is called uh, Maybe the Politicians Can't Do It, uh, but you can, which is to plan and carry out a, a long-term financial program. How is it that individuals can do something that the government doesn't seem to be capable of doing?
3: Well, uh, because uh, the government uh, operates in terms of the election cycle, and and uh, the, the people in office now, since there is no handy solution to the social security to, to the demands that are going to be made on social security or on the Medicare trust funds, uh, politicians would prefer to just leave that for the next next administration to deal with uh individuals though don't have to take that attitude although many of us do but but we can say look i'm going to save consistently and invest consistently take maximum advantage of whatever tax deferred accounts are available to me uh certainly uh people should take advantage of uh, any employer matching funds that are available for retirement plans if 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 you're fortunate enough to work in a place that offers that, you that's free money. You shouldn't leave any of that on the table. You should maximize your contributions to 401K plans. Uh, If you don't have one, if you're eligible, maximize your contributions to Roth IRAs. Um, Never borrow money on a credit card. You know, things like that. There are some very simple steps, uh, common-sense steps that people can take uh, to prepare themselves uh, for, for a sound financial future.
2: Very good. All right, well, it's really been fascinating. I really appreciate your time with us, uh, Marvin Appel. Uh, his new book is called Beating the Market Three Months at a Time. Uh, Marvin's website is appellasset.com, A-P-P-E-L-A-S-S-E-T.com, uh, to find about his services and his book. He's given us a lot of really great ideas. Uh, now you're armed to go and take care of your own finances, even though the government and other people aren't doing it. <laughs> you can do it yourself. Thanks again for being on the show, Marvin. Thank you for the invitation. And we'll be back again next week.